Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry podcast. We recently hosted a series of interviews at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, a conference known for innovation and collaboration. Our second session was called A Day in the Life of a Pharma Leader, and I was joined by Bryant Powell, who is the Associate Director and Chief of Staff of Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, You'll learn more about him and his role as a podcaster and uh, an overall change agent within the company. And then we also had the pleasure, and this was the executive, Rosanna Rickefort. She's the VP of Immuno-Oncology Cell Therapy Clinical Development at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And we really talked about sort of all of the things that go on behind the scenes, both internally and externally at the company, what makes them successful, how they become patient-centric. We learn a lot more about Rosanna and Bryant, both serious and light. We really think you'll take a lot away from this session and hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for coming here today. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Aaron. So normally I hate it when moderators do this because it's lazy, but we had two choices and that was I could sit here and read off a sheet and try to tell you things that these lovely people had in their bios, or I could let them tell you because they know their past way better than I do. And I want to put a twist on it. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and then I want them to tell the audience one thing about themselves that people may not know. So, Rosanna, we're going to start with you. Oh, okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Rosanna Rickefort. I'm happy to be here with all of you. It's really fun. Um, so, I'm a pediatric hematologist oncologist by training. Um, did my training at uh, Sloan Kettering in New York. And then, um, after 10 years in academia and clinical practice, I made the pivot into industry. And I've been at BMS for eight years, leading. Um, various initiatives in research and development and um, a twist about me is that I'm not only a physician and a pharma leader but I'm also a patient. I was diagnosed last year with cancer and I've been going through my journey. Well thank you for sharing that. I may have known that and this is going to come up again and so thank you for sharing that and being brave and I think you're going to realize like as much as that's horrific that you've had to go through this, there are some silver linings to it. And we'll get into why there might be some silver linings to that. So thank you for sharing. Brian, let's uh, hear more about you and something that people don't know. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Again, appreciate everyone coming out today. I know it's a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at South by, but really appreciate the time. So again, my name is Brian. I've been at Bristol Myers Group for about three and a half years. I'm currently in a strategy and ops role within worldwide uh, commercialization capabilities and strategy. Uh, basically, the de facto chief of staff for that leader. And uh, another part of my time at Bristol Myers Group is I'm the host of the Bold Innovators podcast, which is a podcast that talks to allies uh, and people part of our bold organization, the black uh, organization for leadership development about what makes them a leader and what kind of what makes them tick. 
And uh, I guess an interesting fact about me, I'm a film nerd. Um, my first job, actually, as an adult, was working at Blockbuster Video, if anyone remembers, renting films. Yeah, there you go. Got a van over there. Uh, but no longer existing anymore. So I'm, I love films. I love movies. And I'm super excited because... BMS actually has a film premiering at South by called Living that talks about our patients and the patients' joys there. Well, thank you, Brian. We saw a little bit of a clip yesterday. It is about patients and may have gotten a little dusty in the room when we were watching it. So I want to dig in. And one of the things that I do on the Real Chemistry Podcast is I always like to know how people get into healthcare, right? So I'm hoping a lot of you are healthcare nerds. Can we have a show of hands? Anyone a healthcare nerd in the audience? Okay. Not a shock. Um, I did not come from a healthcare background, but sort of learned my way into it. And I was joking with someone yesterday where it's like, man, I wish I could be with the cool kids. And then this pandemic happened and all of a sudden healthcare is very cool. And it's front and center here at, you know, South by Southwest. They moved the health and med tech track to the convention center because they really wanted to put it front and center. Um, but I love to know, like, how did people sort of come on their journey? So Rosanna, we'll start with you. How did you get into healthcare? Yeah, well, it's nice to know we're part of the cool kids now. Yeah, totally part of the cool kids. <laughs> so my healthcare journey began when I was a child. So my mom was a um, medical technologist, and she oversaw the blood bank at a major trauma center in New Jersey. So anytime there was an emergency um, or a liver transplant, she had to rush into the blood bank and make sure that everything was okay and set up for the patients. Um, and sometimes she would have to bring me along. And I remember as a child um, going to the blood bank and looking at all the bags of red blood cells and platelets and being fascinated by that. And everyone was rushing around with a sense of urgency, but not chaotic because they were all knew what they were supposed to do and they all had their place. And so that was really thrilling for me. Um, later, when I was in college, I would be a scientist in an adjacent lab um, doing cord blood transplants in animal models. And I was really hooked on that. But um, I also wanted to work with humans. Um, <laughs> and I you know, had an affinity. I really wanted to help children. And so I married my interest with science, blood bank, hematopoietic stem cells with my affinity to help children. And I became a pediatric hematologist oncologist and um, eventually ran my own uh, blood and marrow stem cell transplant program in New York. So, I mean, there's some people that get into healthcare and there are some people that really get into healthcare. So um, bless you for doing that because you're making the world a better place for doing those things. One of the things I mentioned is Brian and I are going to co-moderate, but I, he is going to be on the hot seat a few more times. And so I do want to know, Brian, how did you get into healthcare? Yeah, I don't mind being on the hot seat. Um, so my path's a little bit nuanced. So as my first job was working at Blockbuster, but my career before healthcare was in the media and entertainment space. So I worked for the National Basketball Association for a year, and then I worked for a company called In Demand that provided all the on-demand content for cable operators, like pay-per-view fights, wrestling events, so on and so forth. Uh, but that point in my career, I kind of wanted to get a, my business degree to kind of understand more of how business works, especially analytics. So I went to uh, Washington University in St. Louis, great business school, and I was there for two years with an amazing experience. And I had an internship opportunity with an amazing CPG, uh, the Hershey Company, based out of uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And it was a great experience. But right before I started, uh, my father actually got diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was devastating for the whole entire family. And I'm 
very close to my father. And during that whole entire summer, he actually lived in Philadelphia, so it made it convenient. So during the week, I would have my internship with the Hershey Company. Then during the weekend, I would drive back, take him to chemo, spend time with him because he lived by himself, and just make sure I was support for him during the whole entire process. And then during my time at the Hershey Company, I started to realize more and more that I want to work for a company or a brand really helping people just like my father was going through an ailment such as this. So um, afterwards, I started focusing my second year on healthcare companies and companies that were providing good and impact to patients and people. And long story short, I had the opportunity and the greatest opportunity to get an offer from Bristol Myers Squibbs, part of our BINA organization's business insights and analytics, based our internal consulting unit of Bristol Myers Squibb. And I remember the, the day I actually uh, uh, called my father with the news that I got the offer. I was like, you know, hey, Dad, hey, I just got the offer from BMS. And he, after that, he said, so when are you going to take the offer? I'm like, what? It's like, it's a great company. Um, you want to work in the healthcare space, and you're closer to me now. I'm only like 25, 30 minutes away. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll take the offer. And it's been an amazing experience um, ever since. Uh, unfortunately, my father passed away six weeks before I started Bristol-Myers Squibb. But every time I go into the office, I think of him, and I work for him because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be at BMS with all these great opportunities. And I wouldn't be on the path in which I feel like the day-to-day work in my job is actually helping patients uh, get over these uh, tremendously terrible diseases. So long story short, that's how I kind of entered into the healthcare space and why it's been a very important asset of my life now. Well, I mean, it's critically important. So first of all, I'm sorry. But I think one of the things and one of the reasons why I like to ask this question is to humanize it, right? Because a lot of us that do work in healthcare, sometimes we get, you know, we're the evil empire, right? And they're just out there for money. And you see people like these two amazing human beings. And they're doing this because they care about patients. And they it's a personal journey, right? And some commit so much that it's like, I'm going to become a doctor. And I'm going to work for a company that can bring life-saving therapies to the marketplace. So thank you both for sharing that. Before we get into the sort of bouncing back and forth where, because Bryant focuses a lot of his energy on internal. I do a lot of my energy as a chief marketing officer on external. So we're going to take turns asking Rosanna questions about sort of different applications, internal, external. But I do like to sort of find out, because I think, is this your first experience at South by? This is my first experience And your first experience? Yeah. So we have two newbies. I've been doing this now for 15 years. Amazing, because you can tell I'm like, you know, started when I was 12 years old. Um, not really. But I do like to find out, like, in both of these lovely people just got in yesterday, so they have not had a chance to do too, too much, and they were both like responsible and went to bed early last night. Um, but I know you got to see a session with one of your peers yesterday. And Brian, I know you get a chance to, to see something. So why don't we start with you? You get to go and do something fun last night. Yes? Yeah, at the uh, place at the Augustine, I think the, the city of Tulsa had an event in which it talked about um, the, the new Black Wall Street that's being built in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And obviously everyone knows the 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 tragedy that had happened about 100 years ago with the massacre that happened. But they were talking about the revitalization of Tulsa, why Tulsa is an amazing place for entrepreneurs, people to start companies, and really have a, a diaspora of black excellence there. And I was highly inspired by the conversation and the talk. And while I can't move to Tulsa right now, I can see myself potentially moving to Tulsa how much they were talking about it. And it was a great experience. That's my first event at South by Southwest. And that's the start of it. I can't imagine what the rest is going to be. Well, and then you get to be on stage for your yeah, second you event, right? <laughs> Better. 
Rosanna, how about you? I know you got to see your colleague, Michelle. What did you think? I did. I did. I got to see Michelle Weiss um, in the, the healthcare talk where she was really talking about the purpose driven culture that we have at BMS. So that was, that was fun. She was interviewed by, um, the, Liz Prosser, uh, yeah. Right. From women's health. So that was a, a fun session and it was cool because, you know, we're at BMS, we live the culture every day and we're there, but to see her bring that out to the external world and talk about it, it was like, oh yeah, we do do that. That is cool. You know, she talked about, um, you know, day one in the company, making sure that everyone is aligned on our purpose-driven culture. And there's this question that we have everywhere of who do you work for? So that was, that was cool. Um, and it's, you know, what patient do you work for? I think that everyone has been touched by cancer or will be touched by cancer sometime in their life. Um, and she talked about the coast to coast, um, ride that we do for cancer where it's an all BMS employee event. And um, they do a ride from Oregon to the shores of New Jersey for three days, um, benefiting um, cancer research. So it was, it was a cool session. Well, and I love the who do you work for. And it's funny, she was self-deprecating because she's like, I'm sitting here filling out my paperwork. And I see this question that says, who do you work for? She's like, BMS? Is that <laughs> the president or whatever? And then she realized that, no, it's like, what is your purpose, right? And I think that's the thing that we're learning. Any company you work for, you want it to have a purpose and particularly someone like BMS that is bringing life-saving, you know, therapies to market. Um, it's important to have intention, right? So I love the fact that they asked that on day one. So, Brian, you have the first question. I'll let you uh, start the interview here. Yeah. So, Rosanna, communication is very key in any organization and drive initiatives and culture. So, are there any two or three communication channels that are very effective for you and your team? Yeah. I mean, I think... You know, the past several years, we've been through a lot, right? As a company, um, we've integrated uh, BMS with Celgene, Myocardia, Turning Point. Um, as a community, as a global community with the pandemic and everything going on in the world right now, and it's, it's hard. And I, I don't think that we can shy away from that. You know, the days of showing up with a perfect face are gone. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it is about um, building trust, um, but also setting boundaries for people and giving them the space that they need um, to deal with everything that they're dealing with in their lives. Uh, building trust, a lot of that is, you know, first it started when we were on Teams meetings and you could, you know, see everyone's background and commenting on, on things like that. And that was cool because when you share a little bit of part of yourself with your colleagues, you engender that, that feeling of camaraderie and that trust. And you can leverage that trust as well in setting boundaries because we do have to make sure that um, we're giving people the space that they need, that we are, you know, we're a global company. So we have colleagues from U.S. West Coast to East Coast to Boudry, Switzerland, other places in Europe, all the way to Japan. You know, that's a lot of time zones to deal with when you're exactly. setting meetings. And so it's, you know, making sure that we are establishing ways of working um, you know, U.S., EU, Japan, working hours and taking turns with time zones when we do have to have those meetings where we have global representation. So that's that's one thing. And then the other is face-to-face -face time. We're going back mm. to the office, right, Brian? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, we are back in the office. We are back in the office. And it takes a lot to overcome that activation energy to, you know, 
put your shoes on and get out the door. <laughs> and so um, it's been fun. So I like bought new shoes, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, went to the office, and it's really energizing, actually. And we we miss that, right? We miss yeah, that we serendipity of bumping into a colleague and having a conversation, and let that leading into a follow up meeting and an email that helps you on a project. Um, so it's been it's been a good time. Yeah. That's great. I know we're 50-50 in the office now, so half the time you're in, half the time you're out. And talk about the energizing part. I put on a town hall a couple of weeks ago for my boss, and I think we had a um, – it was on a Monday morning right after, like, President's Day, which I don't think people are going to the office. But we mentioned that patients are going to come in, and they're going to talk about their story. And we expected only 100 people to come, but because of that patient-centric conversation – it was a full house and overflow as well. And the connection that people had when they got back into the office, it was an amazing experience. So it just attests to the fact that having that in-person conversation again is something that I missed out on. I didn't realize I missed until we started going back to the office. Yeah, it's one of those conundrums, right, where I think it's why we're here and why we're in person. Because, you know, we did South by Southwest virtually in 2021. It was fine, but it sucked not being able to, like, hang out and see people. I'm a big hugger. Um, a big, big napper, as you can see by my T-shirt. <laughs> but it is that human touch and that human interaction and really being able to engage with people. And I know it is hard, right, because we all get comfy in our slippers and our sweatpants. <laughs> you know, it's like the mullet of business world where you'd have, like, a professional shirt and then down here I'd be wearing shorts and slippers, right? Um, I do want to get into a question because you mentioned not only are you a, a doctor but also a uh, patient. Who here in the audience is a patient? Raise your hands. You know, has been or, you know, actively, who knows someone in their life that they care about that's a patient? Raise your hands. Okay. We're all patients at some, or, or caregivers, right? So one of the things I like to sort of explore is, again, I think sometimes it's like we're these big bad people that sit in these offices and we don't really know, you know, we don't care. We just want to like make money. And that's so opposite of the truth. And one of the things that I remember I learned, I one of my first jobs was at Fidelity Investments. And I worked in marketing. We sat a little bit in our ivory tower. We thought we knew exactly what all the, the customers needed. And then once or twice a year, they would actually put us on the phones or even worse, they'd put us in branches. And we actually had to face customers. And we found out that the questions that they asked and the things they wanted had very little to do with what we thought they wanted. So I asked this or I mentioned this story because I think understanding patients and being patient-centric, which a lot of companies are now trying to do better, is critically important. So... Rosanna, you have the benefit of being, a, you know, being raised as a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and bone marrow transplant physician. What has that taught you? And you're not practicing now, although you do, I think you said summer camp a couple times a year. <laughs> but what has that taught you in terms of how to interact with patients, um, how to sort of take that into your day-to-day -day work so that, you know, as you're talking to your colleagues, you're like, no, I know how a patient's going to react. I know the troubles and the, and the things that they're going through. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that question. I think, you know, I've had the honor and the privilege of being in patient care for 10 years and witnessing firsthand the impact um, that we can have on patients and their families. Um, there's nothing more rewarding than having a positive impact on a child. So as a pediatric oncologist, I would say that that was an absolute privilege and the most rewarding part of my career. You know, when I transitioned to pharma, I was worried about, you know, was I going to miss that, that, that interaction? Um, and what I realized is the greater impact that we have 
on patients um, and their families. Being at a company like BMS that's innovating um, medicines and delivering more medicines to patients. Um, and in every meeting that I'm in, I do put that patient-centric hat on, and I am going to be the voice that pressure tests every decision that we make um, and ensures that we're thinking about the patient. Um, so I'm in clinical development, and I, I lead a team of physicians who are running and executing the clinical trials, the research that we're doing to enable us to bring the medicines to the market. And when we're designing the clinical trials, it's really important to have that you know, end game in mind. How is this going to be received in the marketplace for the patients? How are doctors going to incorporate that into their clinical practice? And so we can't develop our drugs in a silo. We need to ensure that we're always taking those perspectives in, into account. So when it comes to designing the clinical trial, picking the study population, understanding the design of the trial, and when you have a randomized trial with a control arm, ensuring that we can also give those patients access because they have highly aggressive diseases. Um, and I think that, you know, we know that we can't do this alone. And so we've actually have a new process at BMS called PEER. And I have to look at exactly what we told, we told Rosanna. Like, she could cheat. She's been doing a good right. job. I have so my far. notes. Yeah. I have my notes because I'm bad at acronyms. It's the Patient Expert Engagement Resource. Come on. But it's pure. So what that means is um, we go out to patient advocacy groups with our clinical protocols. And we say, here's the protocol. This is study population. This is the design. This is the treatment schedule. What do you think? And we incorporate that feedback into our clinical trials, and it's actually implemented and ingrained into our governance process. So we can't get a trial approved by management until we go to peer. So it's an absolute necessity, and it, that's bring the patient voice. So I love that, and I do one more question to drill down on this, Brian, before you jump in. Mm. So one of the things you shared up front that you are a patient, mm. and there was like this cold water in the face moment, yeah. but I think you learned something and, and hopefully you're able to apply that to your job now. So let's talk about this thing called day one. Yeah. So anyone that's ever been diagnosed with cancer or has a loved one that's been diagnosed with cancer, there's this thing called day one and it's not a good thing. Yeah. But we learned something, there's a silver lining that came out of this. So talk a little bit about your day one experience and what that taught you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that question. You know, Michelle talked about day one at the company yesterday about how you write down who are you working for my day one and anyone who's been a patient knows what that day one is like. It's that first meeting with your oncologist when they tell you your diagnosis, tell you about the stage that you have, outline the prognosis and treatment plan for you. And it's a really scary thing for you and your loved one that you take with you. It's so anxiety provoking and you go in there with such trepidation about what they're going to be able to tell you. Um, so for my day one talk, um, I brought my husband and um, we went in to see um, an, our, my oncologist, who is someone that I actually worked with as an investigator. Um, and um, we talked, you know, she dressed my husband very nicely, but then soon after that, it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation with us and we just delved into the scientific research, the advances, the clinical data, the, you know, exact 
diagnosis that I had. And, and then she was like, oh, and oh my gosh, you know, remember all that work that we were doing and there's a clinical trial and I think you may be eligible. And then that kind of hit me smack in the face. Like, this is amazing that the work that we did together led to a clinical trial that would help me. And so I enrolled on the clinical trial and I think about, you know, that day one talk and it's really poignant. And one of my colleagues, I was telling him this, this story and he was like, so when you say, who do you work for? Do you say myself? (laughs) And I said, no, actually we work for each other, right? Because every single person in this room has been touched by cancer and you never know who it's going to be um, going forward. It was me. I never thought that would have happened. Um, but why not me, right? And so who I work for is each other. So as a patient, uh, how has that impacted your perspective when it comes to clinical trials and scientific innovation, uh, particularly when it comes to an advancing outcomes for patients? Yeah, I mean, it's it's vitally important, right? I mean, um, when you listen to patient stories and you hear, you know, patients saying, we just heard a patient story last week that was really amazing. And it was a, a patient um, that was diagnosed with cancer and she was, you know, trying to find resources and trying to find clinical trials that she would be eligible for. Um, and she located one um, at a place that was far away from her and she had the means and she went. Um, and what was amazing was that, you know, there was a medicine that was available to her um, just a few days mm. before, you know, she was, um, she went to the treatment center. And so it really instills that sense of urgency, right? Just a few days. If she had gone a few days you know, earlier, it wouldn't have been available to her, but it was. And so, you know, when we think about our timelines and, you know, we're always trying to do things faster, right? But the why we need to, and the connecting that to the patients on the other side, it's remarkable to think about that. And so it's that sense of urgency and passion um, that we have. So I want to ask, uh, I'm going to actually put you on the hot seat too, because I know physician, patient, um, how do we become more patient centric? I think all of us in our jobs would like to do that. So Brian, we didn't have this in the script, but I'm going to ask you, how do you become more patient centric? And then we'll find other ways that you make sure that you're digging in and really keeping that patient centricity. Yeah, no problem. I think I'm a marketer kind of by heart at the end of the day. And I think just listening to the patients, um, uh, my mother is a patient as well. She actually has cancer too, uh, but she's being treated right now. But just listening to her experiences, what she goes through, uh, kind of her every day, I think that's the best way to connect to patients because each individual person has their own journey and kind of understanding them from the qualitative, not the quantitative, is something that really energizes me and kind of learning more how we can help these particular individuals. So that's how I kind of connect more with the patients and having them personally one-on-one and have those conversations, probably one of the best feelings in the world that you're actually doing something to help them. Well, thank you for sharing that. Rosanna? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I want to share is, you know, 
I talk about being a practicing physician and having the honor to, you know, witness firsthand the impact that we have on patients. And I know that a lot of my colleagues don't have that, right? Um, so at BMS, um, every September we have what's called Global Patient Week, where we bring in patient stories and we share that um, with our colleagues. And I think, you know, when you make that connection of what it means to patients the work that we're doing, it really just instills so much more meaning and purpose to what we're doing. And so that's one of the ways um, that we, you know, make sure to elevate patient voices and, and make that the forefront of everything that we do. When it comes to leadership, everyone has their own particular style of leadership, but particularly for you, what is your leadership style, your leadership principles? Yeah, well, you know, I, I look at, um, I've had a lot of managers and leaders in my life and I also am inspired by by other leaders and um, and I would say Indra Nui is someone that I would really inspires me as a leader because she set really high she's a former CEO of, of PepsiCo mm -hmm. and she really inspires me because she is like that you know South Asian typical like sets really high standards <laughs> wants the output from her team um, but she also, it's very evident that she cares for her people, right? Mm. Um, and she brings that personal touch to her, her leadership. I, I think I'm that same way. I, I set high expectations for my teams, but I don't ever ask them to do anything I wouldn't do myself. And there are times when I, you know, roll up my sleeves and, and help and, and do things for, uh, for the team because someone's out or whatever. Um, but it's also that, that personal connection um, with the team as well. You know, when, when I was diagnosed, I knew that I was going to have to change the way that I worked with them. And I sent, um, you know, I had a meeting with my team and I sent a personal communication out to everyone to establish our new ways of working. But I also wanted to share with them my story because I think that it, it fundamentally changed me mm. and it changed the way that I approached my work. And I wanted them to know that, you know, you always think, am I making an impact? Is what I'm doing, you know, making a difference? And I wanted them to know my story and how, you know, I was enrolling on a clinical trial. And it was because of the work that they do that we could offer more clinical research and, and progress the field forward um, for patients like me. That's awesome. How did that leadership style change within your organization? You said it changed. How did it change? I think, you know, we became more um, willing to be vulnerable, right? That, that permission to just share parts of your life that you usually, you know, don't share with your coworkers. I, I think that that, you know, definitely changed the dynamic of the teams, how we were working. Um, together cross-functionally and so also goes to our speak up culture we're all about speaking oh, yeah. up organization making sure that everyone's voice is heard so your leadership literally led to that type of culture being built to your organization that's Fantastic. right that's right i mean the speak up culture is really important to us right but i mean i was like that when i was a younger you know faculty member or a when i first entered industry i had no idea what the expectations were me for you know, being a physician in industry. And so I would often, you know, just be very analytical and sit back at meetings and, and listen. And it was hard for me 
because of how I defined myself as other. And it's recognizing that there's team members that will feel different in whatever they define that different to be. For me, it was a physician fresh out of clinical practice going into a meeting. For others, it could be whatever. But it's drawing those opinions out, drawing that out from people and allowing them, you know, that voice. So we have one more serious question. It's a two-parter. And then we're going to get into some fun speed round yeah. questions. The two-part question, and Brian, I'll let you ask the second part. But what external initiative at BMS, obviously you have the documentary, which is a big deal, but what external initiatives right now are you excited about? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, talking about clinical trial diversity is important, yep. right? Um, and that really is vital to me. I mean, I, I don't want to just give it lip service because everyone talks about diversity, but clinical trial diversity is extremely important to me. Um, I, I gave my background a little bit. I used to work in a hospital in the Upper East Side in Manhattan. It was like the richest zip code in New York City. And I moved from there to working in the Bronx, one of the poorest zip codes in New York City. And so I had a firsthand account of health inequities and the challenges that patients and their families faced when they're trying to get appropriate health care. And so that, that means a lot um, to me. And, and I'm really proud at BMS that we are making strides in this arena. We're not perfect. I think there's still so much work to do. When I look at the data, I cringe when I see, you know, the demographic information and see the representation that we have, but we are doing better. We know we have to do better. Uh, but doing better is a holistic approach. It's not just one thing. So we are going to sites and, and being deliberate about opening new um, clinical trial sites at places um, that are historically underserved. We are training investigators that are from those, you know, historically, you know, marginalized um, areas as well, because you need the investigators to um, partner with you. Um, and then we're also um, training, um, you know, so we have an initiative where we're giving grants to 250 um, investigators um, so that that can be done. And then it's also about our own workforce, right? Because you need the voice at the table mm -hmm. at the places where decisions are made in order to move the field forward. So we are being very deliberate about um, not only recruiting and retaining, but developing our talent. And we have a lot of STEM outreach programs as well. So um, I think it's, it's going to take a lot. It's not just, you know, one thing. And um, I'm excited at the progress that we're making. Well, I love the investigator part, right? So we had a woman named Dr. Cherie Butts, who's a clinician at Biogen, who spoke last year at South By. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she said with that same mantra of getting diversity into the clinical trials is, we just go and talk to the investigators and say, these are the people we're looking for. This is how we want to fill it. And I was like, duh, like, why don't more people do that? So I love yeah. to hear that you're training people right. and you have that intentionality about this is what we're looking for and you're the front lines and help us do what we need to do here. Yeah. And we've also given a grants to patient advocacy groups and nonprofits as well, because we know that it's going to take a lot to engage with the community. Um, as you know, there's a lot of bad history when it comes to, you yep. know, clinical trials. And so it's, um, you know, we, we do need to get at this from a lot of different points. Yeah, great. On, on same question, but internally, what are initiatives you're excited about internally at BMS? 
I mean, you talked about the speak up culture, right? That's that's really cool. So that was something that we, you know, went live with last year um, at a big company meeting, and it's something that we try to instill um, throughout. And it's uh, making sure that, you know, you don't there's an elephant in the room sometimes that thing, right? That no one wants to say, but someone's got to say it. And so it's um, and I've noticed a change. Um, be- because we we do know that you know having diverse perspectives and drawing that out leads to better decision making, leads to better business, and so um, we do need to be intentional about seeking you know diverse perspectives, even when they don't agree with ours. So, hundred percent agree with you on that. Diversity inclusion is very important. Again. Initiative I'm excited about is simplicity. So how we mm-hmm. simplify our ways of working and processes because we want to make sure we focus on the most impactful things which is providing products and services to our patients. So as a you know, small initiative, I'm excited about a BMS. Well, thank you both for sharing that. And this is where we get a little more fun. I have three questions. And the first one is your first concert, not favorite, because people always want to share like, oh, I went and saw Bruce Springsteen or I saw, you know, whomever. Usually, hopefully, it's a little embarrassment factor. I don't know the answer to this question yet, but Rosanna, we'll start with you. What was your first? It concert? is kind of it, it is kind of embarrassing. Good, because I, I grew up in Jersey, <laughs> so it was Whitney Houston oh, oh, at the cool. NJ Pack, <laughs> and oh, I had I had cool a light up rose as well for well, the slow that, jams. That yeah. was nerdy, but yes. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that, Brian. How about you? a fantastic one, by the way. Um, <laughs> my first one, I, I enjoyed this one. It was Jay-Z when I turned oh. 21 in Las Vegas. So That's cool. no better way to go to your first concert in Las Vegas. And I, I had a good time, let's just say that. It's much better cool. that it was Jay-Z, not Kanye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone no, no, else no. is going <laughs> to steer off the track. That's cool. We brought my son to the Jay-Z concert in the Barclays for his 16th birthday. Oh. So he's five years ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, and I'll share mine, not that anyone asked, but Ozzy Osbourne, 1982. And just for fun, so I'm, I'm a junior high school kid, or I guess middle school now. And uh, it was right after in Cleveland, he was at the concert and bit a head off of a bat. Oh, so he's coming to Boston Garden. I'm a Boston guy uh, originally. And my parents, you imagine how thrilled they were. I was going with my best friend. I'm in seventh grade. It's like, oh, good. He's going to go see this crazy person who's biting heads off of bats and is satanic. So uh, we got through there. No bats were harmed in the concert, but that was my first. The second one that I started to ask during the pandemic is, and it could be anything, right? It could be I want to play the brisket in front of me or I want to cure cancer. But if you had one wish... <laughs> What would that wish be and why? I mean, how can I not say I want to cure cancer? But um, Well, you can ask for three wishes and then you can do that. Well, this is my first time at South By. So if anyone can get me a ticket to, like, Yellow Jackets tonight, (laughs) that would be good. (laughs) We see what we can do. Okay. We have friends in high places. All right. That's a good one. Right. So my wish, it might defy like the laws of physics, but I just wish I had more time in the day because there's so many things I want to do, spend time with people, friends, skills to work on. I just don't have enough time in the day. I'm not asking for a lot. Maybe an extra hour every single day. I can take that. No daylight savings time, so they took an hour away from me, but uh, an extra time would be something I would definitely wish for. Well, I have a pro tip for you. If you get in a plane and fly around the world, I think you can actually gain an extra hour every day. So, there you go. There, there you go. go. You just need that airplane. Right there. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so the last one is, what movie, you're on TV, you're scrolling through, you see the movie and it's halfway through and there's commercials in it, you probably own the movie, right, either on Amazon or you own the hard copy because you bought it at Blockbuster. <laughs> like, what's the one movie that you will stop, irrespective of what you're doing, 
and we'll watch the rest of it, ads and all. Rosanna? For me, it's Moonstruck. Moonstruck. I, mean, oh, I like it. Cher, right? Isn't <laughs> Cher, that one? Yeah. Nicolas Cage. I mean, there's something about, first of all, it's in New York and, you know, you see all these different parts from Brooklyn. I, the townhouse that her family owns is ridiculous and, you know, all of that. Um, and then she does, who doesn't like a makeover movie, right? And she has like this fabulous makeover and she goes from like whatever to looking like Cher and um, and it's like really funny at the end that last scene when Olympia Dukakis is making you know breakfast for her and um, it's just you know she confronts her fiance and her fiance's brother who's Nicolas Cage who becomes her lover and it's just this really hysterical scene where all the characters come together um, she's making um, eggs in a basket for breakfast and um, I make that breakfast sometimes for my family, and I've watched Moonstruck so many times that they call it Moonstruck eggs. So I'm like, what do you want for breakfast? And they say Moonstruck eggs. Well, I so clearly you, the proof in, uh, of concept is the fact that you know those little details, right? Where I remembered Cher was in it. I remember the title of the movie, and I don't remember anything beyond that. So, Brian, how about you? As I said, I was a, a movie nerd, so this is when I show my cards a little bit, but Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope. Any Star Wars fans here? <laughs> yeah, baby. There yep. we go. There are my people yep. out here. Every time it's on TNT, TBS, I always have to watch it. My fiance hates it, but <laughs> I, at least she knows I'm enjoying it. I can rehearse a lot of the lines and stuff, but that's a film that I can instantaneously watch. But I don't know, after Monday, after watching Living at the Soho House, that might be the next film I always have yeah. to watch when it comes on. So that's my movie. Well, one little fun fact. My movie is either Shawshank Redemption or Goodwill Hunting. Um, but I have a 21-year-old 20 son. He comes home the other day, just started dating this woman. He's like, Mom, Dad, here's the thing. One, we matched on Spotify. So you can take your two Spotify accounts and, and match them. 90% match. But the really cool thing is she likes Star Wars. Uh, and it's like, oh, this is my son who grew up with my poor mother. And they had to reenact all of the scenes from Star Wars. They would watch it for like two minutes. He's like, okay, we have to pause. And now we're going to act out this scene. So I love the fact that you're a Star Wars nerd. And she's a keeper, right? obviously. Uh, exactly, yes. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Rosanna Rickerford and Brian Powell. Thank you all for being here. Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.